One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm really delighted that this season is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts. I'm a Tide customer myself. It's where the account for my photography studio lives, and I've been really pleased with how they've looked after us for the last few years. They make it really easy for sole traders and freelancers to set up business accounts for free with handy tools like accounting integrations, invoicing and much more. People often think that your money isn't protected in a challenger bank or app-based bank, but Tide has FSCS protection in the UK, just like traditional bank accounts. Tide is dedicated to small businesses and whenever I've needed help, the people on the apps chat function have been super responsive. Tide helps me grow my business. Go to tide.co or download the app today to find out more about getting started. This season of The Solo Collective is brought to you by Pension B, an easy way to combine your existing pensions or start a new one. Pension B is a leading online pension provider and has enabled thousands of people to feel pension confident. I feel quite strongly about pensions. For a big chunk of my solo working life, I didn't have a pension, just an old workplace pension that I'd automatically contributed to in my early 20s. I have sorted things out now though. I also feel strongly about women getting pensions. Women typically face an income gap of 38% compared to men when they retire in the UK, which is down to a combination of lower pay throughout our careers, taking career breaks to care for others, and women just not having their own pensions at all. This even leads to female pensioners living in poverty, as many as one in five in the UK. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. Hello and welcome back to The Solo Collective. It is lovely to have you here. Today we are talking to Madeline Dorr, who is a brilliant writer from Australia, who has written a fantastic book called I Didn't Do The Thing Today, which may be my favourite ever book title. And it is all about letting go of productivity guilt and losing our obsession with busyness and our doing obsession and comparison and indecision and basically everything that troubles me all of the time. She started off in this journey back in about 2014 when she started a website called Extraordinary Routines, a blog really, where she interviewed loads and loads of different people about their routines and at the time she was hoping to find a routine for herself which worked and she thought that perhaps by talking to loads of different expert voices from all sorts of fields that she would be able to find the right way for her to work. That ultimately didn't happen. It's a fascinating collection of interviews nonetheless. But what she realised was that our obsession with routines is part of the problem and that for most of us there is no one perfect way of working. And certainly we cannot take the recipe from other people's lives and apply them to our own very different ways of being human. Madeline is also the host of a fantastic podcast series called Routines and Ruts and also has a little mini podcast series which fits in amongst that about rest, both of which are really, really fantastic and really helpful and kind of allow her to deep dive into a lot of the topics that she discusses within the book. I love the journeys that she's been on, actually. I think it's really, really interesting and the book is a real triumph and I think will prove useful to almost anybody who works by themselves. So this has been a brilliant conversation. Conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. 
Thank you so much for coming on The Solo Collective and thank you for doing this in what must be effectively your free time, your evening. I really appreciate that. It's kind of against my brand, actually, that we're making you do this. <laughs> so <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> no, um, no need to. It's such a treat and I'm higgledy-piggledy anyway. So this is, you know, what is free time versus work time. It, it's it all. It's a movable feast, so it's a joy. <laughs> oh, well, that is actually one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about because I'm not the opposite of you exactly but I quite need not to be higgledy-piggledy and I kind of wanted to ask you a bit more about that because one of the things that I'm obsessed with is how other solo workers construct their solo working life I guess and I have this sort of thing about starts and ends and some sort of I guess not a routine but more of a rhythm Mm. and I think without that I think I might end up just not doing anything except work Mm. and so how do you kind of how do you bridge that how do you how do you fix that problem? Yeah, well, maybe there's more similarities than might appear on the surface because I think that the word rhythm is is such a beautiful way to put it in many ways. I think that I am someone who gravitates towards routines and in many ways I was putting them on this pedestal and I thought that if I could just get my routine right, if I could get the start and the end nailed, if I could have everything in the right order, then my day would be streamlined. I would have a successful day and I would be productive and I'd be prolific. I put so much pressure on finding the perfect routine. And so I kept tripping over the aspiration of that. So it's not so much that routines for me are a problem if they're working. It's more just when they become really precarious because they're this ideal version where every parcel of the day is accounted for. But actually that's just a draft. It's not the reality of the day. And so I would find myself becoming more and more entangled by this ideal routine I had in my mind that I was never able to actually execute day to day. And so then I was never able to actually be in my day and be alive to the day because I was just so worried about the fact that I slept through the alarm, like it would spoil the whole day. And so it was really when I relinquished this idea that I have to have a routine and a set order to things that I was able to... I suppose, go with the flow. And in many ways, what I do now looks like a routine. It's just that it's not prescribed and it's not something that I'm forcing myself to do. It's a rhythm that I've arrived at naturally by listening to what my body and my attention and my energy and my mood might be. Do you think that that differs? Like is yours, would you say, quite rigid and structured and you sort of, you stick to it each day or does it change? No, I mean, each day is different, but I know what to expect from each day. I mean, I have little kids, so the boundaries at the beginning and end of my day are quite fixed, mm. but they're different each day. Like today, I'll only work till 3pm um, because I have to pick them up, but tomorrow I will work much later. I found that having children perversely created a structure that I really needed. I don't think I realised how structureless my days were I would work in a very kind of sporadic or unproductive way and I would allow myself to be distracted whereas now because I've got these fixed points at which I have to be responsible I actually get more done so I found those constraints to be really useful but I don't have a kind of I work for two hours I I tend to be more kind of free-flowing within those within those restrictions so that's why it feels more like a rhythm I guess than a routine. Do you think genuinely that those people who talk about their routines as though they are really predictable and structured do you think people are genuinely capable of that is that is that believable or do you think that just happens to people like once a month 
um <laughs> on a really good day and then <laughs> and then the rest of the time they're sort of frantically trying to recreate that sort of experience of of a flow-filled routine day yeah I'm very skeptical of that and there's this beautiful Tom Gunn quote that he said that you know when anyone asks him he will say that a routine is really important and you must have one and you know kind of proclaim piously that that's the secret but actually he doesn't. And I think that mm. that encapsulates it so well is that there's, there's a lot of purporting that you, you know, get a routine. It's like the salve to so many issues. I think mm. it is maybe once in a blue moon, we have those days where everything unfolds in perfect order. And those days feel electric. You know, the days that you do the thing feel wonderful. But I think that it's important to acknowledge the variances in ourselves and how our days unfold. You know, when I started out interviewing people about their routines, it was difficult to kind of get them to speak to the real messy imperfections because <laughs> yeah. we're so used to sort of putting the ideal on paper. But, you know, I was able to see that people were procrastinating too or sometimes it, it wasn't possible to stick to a routine. And I think that's an interesting thing. Sometimes we have these wonderful scaffolding, like, like having children, as you pointed out, can be the thing that helps us with the routine but it can also be on the flip side, the thing that shows us we need to be flexible because mm. who knows what can happen. Like it shows you that disruptions come to the fore as well. We all have great days, but we also all have bad days. And so I think it's all about kind of acknowledging that there's a variety of days that we're working with. And yeah, we sort of to not judge either side, I think is the key. It's such a valuable thing to reflect on our kind of obsession with productivity and the conflation of productivity and self-worth and how productivity is almost like an end in itself rather than being a means to an end, which is a really curious thing about the way that we've structured modern working life or indeed life, because actually your book is about much more than just work. It's about the obsession with productivity throughout the whole of our lives. And I wondered if you have any insight as to where that came from, like how we ended up in this particularly weird position that we found ourselves in. Maybe it's always been an innate human trait to want to move things along. And that's, you know, in essence, what productivity means is to kind of move forward. Mm. But perhaps with the, the pandemic, I think, is one that really amplified, you know, we kind of had this microscope on our days that alerted us to how we fill them. And if we don't have these buffers like a commute or the different things that were squeezed into our day if they all go then this sort of these hours to fill and, and what do we do with them in some instances obviously some people were were busier and the crowding went the other way mm. but I think that's one is we're really alerted to how busyness and filling time is is how we in essence maybe distract ourselves from essential questions about what we want to be doing but I think deeper than that, we're also sort of in an entangled capitalist society and that has its own complexities that, you know, does measure our worth by what we do and we internalize mm. that capitalism. And there's also, you know, we are privy to the lives of other people 24 hours a day. And so that comparison and that smoke and mirrors the assumption of what we think other people are doing and, you know, how they must have perfectly ticked off to-do lists and even the very interviews about people's routines can sort of have us thinking, oh gosh, we're just not doing enough. And so in the book, I sort of speak about how like if productivity is the measure, then that's a, it is moving forward, but we're perpetually lurching. And so we never arrive mm. at this idea of enough. We're just con continually straining ourselves and stretching ourselves. And so what's the alternative? How can we think about kind of redefining things so that, yeah, productivity is part of it, but we can also 
find ways to sort of, I don't know, measure our days. It isn't just what we do. Yeah, I think it's so complicated because it's really going against so much of the grain of modern life which is to say it's necessary to do so but it's a it's a real challenge right because the cultural productivity obsession is so pervasive Mm. I've been in a place where I've been learning about this stuff for six or seven years now and I still I'm much in a much better place than I was when I started my solo project but it's going to take a lifetime I think to Mm. get to grips with it absolutely often you know two steps forward and one's step back like I still have the days where I lament (laughs) that I didn't do the thing especially during writing the book it was very meta to be kind of going through the chapters and I guess living the book as I write it but it is deep stuff in a way because it is about where we gain our sense of worth and 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 I suppose fill voids (laughs) that are you know it's an innate part of being human is that we are imperfect and we have voids and we're, we're searching and that's the part the beautiful part is our curiosity yeah definitely and also I think it's got a connection to money I mean, the reason I came to do the solo book in the first place was because I had kind of misunderstood the brief in a way. And I was using how much I earned as a measure of whether I was successful or not and whether I was worthy or not, really. And productivity was how I got there. (laughs) You know, it Mm. was like, if I can just be more productive and I can earn more money and that means I'm more worthy and I'm doing it right. And I think it's quite a difficult thing to unpick when your productivity is connected to your ability to kind of earn, particularly if you're on your own in whatever you're doing. Mm. I think that very much comes back to the perpetual lurching again, because Mm. just like with productivity, what we earn doesn't have an enough point either necessarily unless we actively set one and then that can be really difficult if we're attaching it to our worth that's an impossible thing to determine if we're attaching it to I guess necessities and kind of pragmatically figuring out what we need then maybe that's a way around it but the, the temptation again to use money as a signal of success that does become really murky and I think that then that has this huge snowball effect on everything like as you say that how you get there is then being more productive but then that can create this busyness snowball and that busyness snowball can create burnout and overwhelm and so it kind of can really grow and grow and grow and it can be impossible to think about like how do we just stop and and how do we come back to the what is enough for for Mm -hmm. us and I am again that's everyone speaking about Money can be really complicated because there's we've all got different you know histories and we might have debt that we're paying off, we might have dependence, we might be saving for a particular goal, and so it can be really difficult again to to figure that out. It's very individual, but yeah, I wonder sometimes we're working so hard for more money, and I, I guess I'm speaking to a particular cohort that you know has enough potentially mm. why why don't we then stop? to have the time to then do the things that we want to do in this life. Mm. And it can be difficult as a solo worker, if especially when sort of the work that you do is entangled with that work that you want to do in this life, mm-hmm. then it can be even more difficult to kind of know when there's enough. But that's a roundabout way of saying that I think that it is completely entangled. I think that it's entangled in a capitalist structure. Mm. To untether from that is is a difficult task and, and for some people maybe they don't want to maybe maybe that the, the money is the goal but I think if it if it is having more connection or, or more time then maybe maybe it is worth seeing whether that figuring out that what is enough money and then 
I don't know, can can you stop? Like would stopping if, if you are on this busyness hamster wheel um, out of a need to sort of tie your earning potential or your productivity to your worth, what would happen if you stopped? Mm, I mean, it's a sort of mind-bending question, isn't it? Because it should be incredibly simple. It should be like we set a budget for the year of what we need to earn and after we've earned it, we stop. I mean, if we're lucky enough to earn that amount mm. in a year and then we stop and we don't need to work anymore. I mean, maybe there are a few people around who can do that, but I've never met any. <laughs> because I just think, especially when you're a solo worker, I think there's a kind of make hay mentality, right, as well, that you you just think, well, I better... I better take the work while it's here and oh someone's offered me some more work so I'm going to take that because who knows what next year might be like or the one after that Mm. so I need to continue to work as hard as I can and say yes to everything because what if they never ask me again or whatever and again I'm in a I'm in a much better psychological position with those questions than I used to be earlier on in my career where I really did say yes to absolutely everything and I, I don't do that anymore but I think that's immensely challenging because I think when you're solo figuring out what enough is is practically impossible frankly Mm, yes because you've got to kind of factor in your future as well Mm. yeah Yeah. and so that that can be really yeah there's definitely no answers with this one it's really (laughs) um, entangled but for me interviewing Debbie Millman was really interesting in terms of she was speaking about the fear of the last opportunity and I think that just framing it as that is like kind of follow fear of the last opportunity um Mm. was a great great way to see that that's an illusion in terms of it being the last like maybe you won't hear from that client again if you say no but that no is actually freeing you up for other opportunities um that might be more fitting and heaven forbid they might even pay more than this particular one if you're doing something out of obligation or because you think that you should be doing it when really there might be something to creating a bit of space, Mm. both for your own mental well-being if you are completely overwhelmed, but also to see where that might lead. Like sometimes we need to say no in order to have a greater opportunity down the track. I guess involves a bit of trust, but I think it really involves interrogating certain obligations and certain shoulds. And again, it's a very nuanced thing because there's a privilege to being able to say no to certain things. Mm. But if you have it, then isn't that what we should be using it for is to be discerning and to try to be able to to change this societal expectation? Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And I think it's a muscle you almost have to strengthen. You know, the first time you do Mm. it, the first time you say no to something that you don't want to do or that isn't kind of adequately compensated or, or whatever the reasoning might be, it's kind of terrifying and then yes progressively it gets easier and easier until you realize you've sort of strengthened that skill and it's not as horrifying the next time and the next time and the next time and then it and then it's kind of almost not easy because I wouldn't say it's ever easy but it becomes a much more commonplace part of your behavioral repertoire I guess Mm. and then it's then it's doable as I mentioned earlier this season of the solo collective is sponsored by Tide Tide has developed a platform for small businesses, which you can use without opening a bank account with them. It's called Cashflow Insights. Regardless of which bank you use for business banking, you can connect it to the Tide platform. And within 24 hours, you'll be getting insights such as cashflow predictions, credit score monitoring and advice about your income and outgoings. It can even tell you your credit status and help you look for business finance with no impact on your credit score. 
Connect your business bank account today to Tide and receive a £75 Uber or Uber Eats voucher. Limited availability. Terms and conditions apply and this offer runs until the end of March. Download the app or Google Tide Cashflow Insights to find out more. One of our sponsors this season is Pensionbee, a way to make setting up a self-employed pension easier. They do a pension specifically for self-employed people, so you can vary your contributions according to your income. One of the things that puts us solo workers off getting a pension is feeling like we won't always be able to afford to contribute. But this way, you can put in lump sums when you get paid for that big job, or trickle money in when things feel a little more precarious. Only 24% of self-employed people contribute into a private pension, even though in the UK, the government will top up our contributions. Go to pensionb.com slash self-employed pension to find out more. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. I'd love to talk a bit about the sort of practical stuff because I, I loved the, the section where you talked about kind of practical ways to approach building your day. Can we talk a bit about some of those ideas that you have about about how you can think about a routine or not having a routine? Yeah, and I suppose with the big caveat that I spent so long searching for the perfect routine and thinking that I could just copy and paste someone else's or adopt their sort of approach morning and, and so on and then kept tumbling over it and, and finding that, you know, you can't recreate the same recipe when you've got different ingredients. So mm. remembering that we can experiment, I think perhaps we're hesitant to because it is easier to be told what to do. We, we do mm. want the instructions. We want the recipe. There's an illusion of it removing uncertainty but we're in our day only when we're not in someone else's if you aren't someone who gravitates towards routine or finds yourself consistently kind of trying new ones and then feeling like a failure because you don't stick to them Mm. there's still ways to kind of I guess find that rhythm or introduce structure so that you you don't feel completely discombobulated when you start each day one that I adopted was Austin Kleon's checkbox approach to a routine. So rather than having everything parceled out in a particular order, mm-hmm. he has just a, a list of things that he knows that if he does those things, it's it's a good day. So it's writing, journaling, reading, and walking. And if those things don't happen, that's okay. It's just that that's kind of the things that he knows grounds him and, and makes introduces some steadiness and rhythm into the day. And so I think that's the openness that really helped me see that, oh, I tell myself that I need to do my morning pages every single day in the morning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but maybe I could have some flexibility and see that, yes, journaling is something that really helps me in my day and grounds me, but it can perhaps happen in the afternoon if something else more pressing came to the fore in the morning. Sometimes we expect that we'll overhaul our lives in one day, like New Year's Eve, this is of New Year's <laughs> yeah. resolutions, I think, uh, point to this. And we expect to sort of be changed. But I think most of the time it is just small things. And sometimes it's about finding one small thing that then creates a domino effect for the, for the others. And so mm. one example for me is that I know that the, the nights that I managed to put my phone out of the bedroom and read a book instead, I'm going to fall asleep at a far more appropriate time because I'm not being completely stimulated by a screen, which means the next day I will wake up earlier more naturally. And that means I'll have some time for that, you know, aforementioned journaling. And so it's that one small thing had a domino for the rest. And so it's not about overhauling my whole life. It's just about finding that one small thing. And maybe that small 
accessible and tangible as a start than kind of creating this perfect routine that only happens once a month. (laughs) I feel like that's a really important kind of part of all of this, that we're not going to radically change the way that we work or the kind of humans that we are in one day. Of course, change Mm. is possible, but it's not going to be through the lens of a routine, I don't think. Yeah. Some of the ways in which setting up your day can be sold as though they are going to be absolute life changes, which I think can be a bit bit dangerous. And that, well, they, they they would be if they if only they worked in terms yes. of sticking to them. Yeah. So like, it, I think it's just that false promise. And I love the Carl Rogers quote that says that when I stopped trying to change myself, I changed. And I think that's where we yeah. can, when we allow ourselves to be higgledy piggledy, that might be the very thing that, as I found, that landed me in this kind of routine esque thing. Also, letting go of the things that we don't need is mm. incredibly powerful too yeah I totally agree I think that thing about the way that life changes is really critical too because many of us think that we will at some point nail it that there is a nailable quality to work and life and that if we just try harder and read more and listen harder that there is a kind of perfect version of our day or life or whatever out there the Mm. whole thing is about seeing ourselves as a work a continual work in progress and finding joy Mm. in that process rather than constantly constantly condemning ourselves for not having reached the perfect goal in the end yes yes so beautifully put because imagine if we met that person who's perfect we we, they're not interesting well (laughs) no and very annoying (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's it's so much more endearing to sort of, you know, be open about our imperfections and our changes and our contradictions. It was just really freeing for me to sort of realize I can change my mind because we're constantly changing and even little parts of us are changing at different times. I was really interested in what you wrote about the the difference between expectations and intentions. I wondered if we could talk a bit about how we sort of strike a balance where our plans are enough to move us through life, but not so heavy that they weigh us down. Yeah, I think that, it, again, it's this sort of lovely little nuance in terms of expectation is there's kind of this element of there being a guarantee to it as if that, you know, if we set this expectation, this is going to happen, mm. this sort of real certainty to it. And I think that's perhaps the stumbling block in an expectation is that we can't guarantee there isn't a certainty and so an intention I find far more malleable because it there isn't a sense of certainty to it. I interviewed Ryder Carroll who started the bullet journal method and he spoke about how an intention, it's kind of like the the lighthouse. It's, it's not sort of mm. the, the outcome and the destination and the sort of it, it's just lighting the way for you. And so if you have an intention that's lighting the way, the possibilities are lit up. You're not sort of focused on this one straight, narrow kind of expectation. I think that introduces so much more flexibility, but also introduces so much more possibility in our in our lives. I think even a to-do list, if we see it as this list of expectations, if we don't get through the end of it, then we see ourselves as a failure but what if we just saw it as a list of possibilities mm. and that means that if we didn't get through it, well, great, there's there's more possibilities. And I know that might sound a bit Pollyanna if what's on that list is like sort of tedious um, <laughs> tasks. It's like, oh, great, I've got still got this possibility of doing my tax. Um, but I think that, I don't know, that holding things lightly, I think, is really 
very much about kind of being lighthearted at the same time as well. As you're talking about the to-do list, I was just picturing what would happen if I changed my to-do list to have the heading rather than to-do, but intentions. Mm. And it sort of shifts. I don't know if I would do it or not. It's intriguing, but it sort of shifts the nature of the list, becomes much less imperative and much more kind of like, well, fingers crossed, <laughs> some of this stuff might happen today. <laughs> that that can be really helpful when there's that sense of overwhelm. I think that that can sometimes have the, the flip side is that we then, have, how does the work get done that's sort of, I suppose, things that don't have the external accountability or deadline and all those things attached that are still important. That's the kind of things that I think need a little bit more protection and we need to realise that we do have limited time and so maybe it's it's acknowledging that if we're crowding our list with those 27 things, asking if those things are the things that are going to move our lives along that we mm. that we actually want to be doing. Mm. Yeah, which actually leads me onto the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is the idea of should, as I really struggle with this. Mm. I've just I've just started working with a coach actually I've only had one session but she told me that she has something called the should shed where (laughs) she puts all the shoulds that shouldn't (laughs) that shouldn't be around can you talk a bit more about what you what you think about should and and how it might be another thing which kind of weighs us down in our pursuit of uh, a good life (laughs) whatever it may be it's a really good question because I think that so much of what's on that list for many people that really interrogated it are they shoulds? That's the expectation, I suppose. So it's it's from yourself or from others. It can be difficult to sort of know the difference between a should that feels empty and a responsibility that is something that I, I do need to do. Those aside, then, then there's a want. And I think that to know the want is when we, we really are, it, it feels enriching and it, and it is the things that are enlivening us. And often they're the things that fall to the bottom of the to-do list mm. because we've crowded our lives with shoulds and responsibilities and obligations sometimes we're doing that to avoid the the wants because it's a wonderful distraction to have, to have all these shoulds and to be on the hamster wheel of trying to, to get through those so that can lead to a lot of overwhelm and so I regularly try to do a inventory of my shoulds mm. is this something that I need to do want to do think I should do and then asking well okay if it is a should is it essential can I can I delegate it? Can I put it in the should shed <laughs> for later because <laughs> it's not going anywhere? Or can I completely take it off my to-do list? Is it, is it an expired want? Is it actually something that I've put on my to-do list because a previous version of myself thought that I wanted to do this, but you know, actually I'm gravitating towards something different mm. and I can let that go now? I think a lot of shoulds are actually tied to our sense of identity and in some ways we need to shed the identity as well and, and see that we, we aren't what we do in that sense. Mm. So that's the real untethering is that we aren't these things that we told ourselves we do and we do change and we are malleable. We can actually create space for the next thing. And I think the space is maybe what we're afraid of. Yeah, yeah, because that leaves a void in your sense of self, I think, because so much of how we construct our ideas about ourselves are about as you say the things that you do and if you remove that belief then it leaves leaves a quite frightening sense of well if I'm not that then who am I which is a quite unsettling place to initially occupy I mean it's a it's a good place to move through (laughs) but it's quite a terrifying one to to get into Mm, big time we're back back to that that scary void (laughs) again (laughs) it's funny because like we 
we're not getting to the shoulds either. So it's it's mm. it's funny that you know we have these shoulds and we don't get through the to do list that's got fifty things on it and you know perhaps fifty shoulds. But it sort of for some reason feels like well you know I can't get to that thing I want to do until I get through this list of shoulds that I have here. It's forever postponing our lives when we when we do that. Oh, the one thing that kind of helps me and rattles me and and gets me to remember is sort of reflecting on our mortality and remembering that it is one short, precious life. Mm. And I've interviewed people who have rituals around reflecting on their mortality. Myra Kelman was someone who, when she wakes up in the morning, she has a cup of coffee and then reads the obituaries. And that's a daily reminder to to do the work that she wants to do because wow. she won't have forever. We do have limited time. And so maybe that's instead of crafting a morning to-do list, it's like writing your own obituary and making sure that you are doing the things that you want to be doing. And maybe that isn't tied to productivity. Maybe it, maybe it is about connecting with the people around you or maybe it's about learning something. Mm. That could be the thing that we want to do is that like I don't want to keep filling this void with things that are outside of me and looking for validation externally and mm. and trying to have my worth determined from something else. I want to do the work of finding it within me. And that's that takes a lifetime. Yeah, but so important. One of the things I took from the book and from the podcasts is this idea that although you're writing about productivity, you're not trying to force people to be more productive. That's not really the point at all. And what I love is that you have this focus on another thing that I'm really obsessed with and and also quite bad at, which is rest and recreation. And I love the way that you talk about quotes, wasted time as valuable and and therefore not wasted. How do we kind of get better at prioritizing rest and recreation? Mm. Oh, favorite topic. Worry of wasted time, I think, is is quite pervasive. And I think what we judge as wasted time, it, it's a catch-all for so many things. And I think, you know, we, we're quick to say that we're lazy or that we're wasting time when actually we are doing the thinking work. We need sort of that that downtime to be able to solve problems. If we have that space, then we're able to actually hear the connections. We're able to um, notice the epiphany. Mm. I think back to this idea of getting rid of the shoulds and having that empty space and having that scary void, actually the solution or what we want starts to crystallize and come to the fore. And so I think it's really important to have that time and to not judge it as lazy or wasting time or procrastinating, actually see it as um, thinking time and and label it appropriately. Of course, there's exceptions when we are, you know, wasting time. And I think Mm. determining the difference is important. But berating ourselves, whether we're wasting time and we know we definitely are wasting time versus when we're thinking, if we're getting caught up in the worry of wasting time, that's actually the surest way to waste time is the worry (laughs) about wasting it. But the other part of it is that we also call things that we enjoy doing, like say a day at the beach with your family. Like I've heard people say that they're worried about the time that they're wasting doing that and how their to-do list will haunt them. But is that enjoyable time really something that we should really call wasting time? Mm. I think that that's yeah. the other flip of it is what, what are we optimizing our time for if to only have the spare time become available and then worry about wasting time in that free time that we've made? Yeah. It's just sort of a funny thing. I'm really into the idea of rest, but not having really got to grips with actually doing it (laughs) Um, because this idea that you have to be doing stuff all the time is so pervasive but a few weeks ago my husband and I were really we were really struggling we felt as though our weekends were just 
a kind of another treadmill mm. of tasks and of errands and of delivering people to places and of shopping and cooking and you know it didn't feel like there was any any pause and so we instituted this thing called the day of rest <laughs> which is like not a new invention on a Sunday and um, <laughs> and so we have been doing it for a few weeks now where we genuinely pause and we just don't do anything that's on the list like the list just gets put away and it's been amazing and I know that mm. again <laughs> people have been doing this for millennia so <laughs> I'm not I'm, I'm not inventing it. a new wheel <laughs> yeah maybe is there maybe so funny but it's it's been quite extraordinary because the restorative quality of it has like we looked at each other at the end of the first one and we were like what have we been doing for our entire lives that we haven't been doing this like what mm. this is insane that we didn't just stop for a whole day when we could Mm. we just didn't try and do anything else anything except the absolute bare minimum and it was so joyful genuinely joyful not boring not worrying because we'd made a deal and we were going to stick with it there was no there was no kind of sense of guilt or anything um and we both started the week with a kind of new bounce in our step because we knew we'd had an actual break i think it's quite important that we reflect on the fact that we've sort of become so accustomed to filling all of our time all of the time that we just have lost the knack of of resting completely Mm, yeah oh this is such a beautiful example and I think that it's funny because as you pointed out and you said with such conviction it's like why didn't we do this if we could like we can why why don't we if we can I think that's the that's the thing that it it comes down to this permission essentially and I think that we can almost this isn't a fully formed thought but this idea of like almost productivity gaslight ourselves in the sense yes. that we think that like rest is for somebody else yes. because they've, they deserve it they've earned their rest I can't I've still got all these other things to do and that's not something that's for me but it's such a rebellious act if each of us say no this is for me too this rest thing I'm I can I can have that too. I think that would be a wonderful thing to see because then by giving ourselves permission, we're also starting to create this beautiful ripple effect of allowing other, giving permission to other people. And imagine if we started comparing ourselves to how sloth-like we all were. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so envious of their lazy Sunday. And so <laughs> like it perpetuates instead of the productivity being on a yeah. pedestal, we put kind of rest on a pedestal or just integrate it, I think would be... A beautiful thing to see so I think that's the beauty in the break yeah essentially is how you put it I love that I love the idea of modeling it for other people and I really wanted to model it for my kids because I was like mm. I don't want them to grow up thinking that this is what being an adult looks like this mm. kind of perpetual doing somewhat grumpy resentful never ending never sitting never relaxing I don't I don't want them to see that and think that that's what their future has to hold I want to give them an alternative idea of what being a grown-up might look like yeah depending on the choices that they make that yeah that felt really important and lovely I wanted to know a bit more about what your working life looks like like physically I'd love to know where you work if it's always in the same place and how much you're alone like how much you're solo in your work physically and kind of mentally so maybe first of all you could tell me about where you work until recently, I was in the same apartment through the entire pandemic and I was living alone in that apartment. And so there was one one little writing nook that I would 
work in and wrote the majority of the book, well, all of the book actually, in that little writing nook. But because that space was very much tied to the longest lockdown in the world in Melbourne where I was living, I speak about in the book this idea of habit fields and how our environments, I'm sure you're very familiar, like create these kind of habit fields. Mm. And so our senses, be it um, smell or touch or sound, we can kind of shift our habit fields depending on the environments. And this space very much sort of had a very particular habit field with it and it was difficult to shift. Mm. And so that's where I was working. And now I have packed my life up into a suitcase, which sounds very um, nomadic of me, but it's what I've done. And, and I'm kind of in between places. How much time do you actually spend alone and solo? How does that work for you? I was about to say all the time because I live alone and I'm single. And yet when I think about when I'm working, I'm often working with other people, often virtually. So mm-hmm. I've got a smattering of friends who we will do, we'll text each other and we'll say, do you want to do a session now? And we'll jump online. And it's just so wonderful to have someone just there sitting in Zoom, Mm. working together for 45 minutes and doing a few different sessions. And I wrote the book with a friend who was also working on a book. So there is companionship and accountability and company. It's just often in that alone together kind of format. I think that's interesting. I think so many of us don't pay attention to the ways in which we're not actually alone. Exactly. Yeah. I think we just have to have all these little tricks for ourselves as solo workers because, you know, we have to create so many of those deadlines ourselves. I think having having the accountability or the, the session friends is a wonderful way to do it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Madeline, thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a lot. It's, um, it's been a joy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> I feel a sense of kind of relief and release after talking with Madeline. I don't know about you guys, I hope you feel the same. But I think there's something very, very powerful about beginning this process of unshackling ourselves from even the idea of productivity and rethinking what we want our lives to look like as workers and as humans. And I think books like hers are the beginning of the way to do it. This stuff is a work in progress and probably a life's work, but I'd rather this was my life's work trying to figure out how not to be horribly busy than the other way around. So I think this is where we need to begin. You can find out more about Madeline Dorr at extraordinaryroutines.com, which is where you'll also find all the interviews that she has done with other people about the way that they create their lives. And she is Extraordinary Routines on Instagram. Her book, I Didn't Do The Thing Today, is out now, published by Murdoch Books. And if you want to find out more about me, you can find me on Instagram. I am at Bexseal, B-E-X-S-E-A-L. You can also find out more about working by yourself on my website, howtoworkalone.com. And also, if I could just ask you a little favour, if you can just tell one other solo worker about this podcast, anyone who you think would benefit from it, that would really help us, as would if you leave us a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. This series is brilliantly produced by Hester Kant. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.